Six people were killed in Beirut this week due to street fighting between gunmen from different sects. But the story is way bigger than that. The frightening question is whether or not sectarian strife will once again plunge Lebanon into an all-out civil war, as it once did from 1975 to 1990. And the other question is, how will Lebanon's sectarian government handle the current economic calamity that is destroying the country? Did you know that Lebanon's current system of government, which is based on a confessional system, a sectarian system, as we often hear in the news, was initially established as a temporary means, a mere stage, if you will, for Lebanon to eventually develop a unified, secular national government, a goal that Lebanon has not yet achieved, and one that seems to be forgotten and hopelessly out of reach. For now. Hey there, news peelers. Today is October 15, 2021, and this is Adele with the Peel Dot News, a history podcast for our news and current affairs. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh. Sometimes it offends. And sometimes it just it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. During the immediate aftermath of the devastating explosion at the port of Beirut last year, back in August of 2020, the one that killed more than 200 and injured thousands, the popular media's coverage of Lebanon was quite focused and intense. But then, it sort of tapered off, as if nothing else was happening in Lebanon. Regardless of our popular media's fleeting coverage of Lebanon. Much has, in fact, transpired there since the tragic explosion last year. Much that we regrettably don't get to see in our TV screens these days. According to the Wall Street Journal, Lebanon is experiencing an economic calamity that could be ranked among the top three in the world in the past 150 years. As the New York Times reported just a few days ago, the country went total dark. Power only came back on when the Lebanese army provided emergency fuel to the national electric grid. And earlier this week, Al Jazeera News ran an article with the following ominous headline: "Unprecedented hunger in Lebanon as fuel crisis hikes food costs." Exactly how much have food prices hiked up in Lebanon? According to TradingEconomics.com. Price of food increased 290 percent from August of 2020 to August of 2021 in Lebanon. 290 percent. 
Such a high inflation has drastically cut the purchasing power of salaries in Lebanon. But there's more, way more. Most Lebanese have lost their life savings in Lebanese banks, and Lebanon's central bank has essentially been running a Ponzi scheme. There's no reliable electricity, fuel, medicine, internet, or variety of other services that facilitate a functioning society. Speaking of functioning, Lebanon does not have a functioning government, literally. Since the August 2020 explosion, Lebanon has a caretaker government, a government that has to contend with sectarian division and the ever-growing threat of open, widespread hostilities. The situation in Lebanon is dire, and we're not a news agency here, so I encourage you to just Google it and learn. To better understand how Lebanon got to this point, and to better understand its history, we spoke with Mr. Osama Makdisi, who is a professor of history and the first holder of the Arab American Educational Foundation Chair of Arab Studies at Rice University. Professor McDesey has been a visiting professor at UC Berkeley, a resident fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Berlin, and was named a Carnegie Scholar in 2009. He was awarded the Berlin Prize and was a fellow at the American Academy of Berlin. Professor McDesey has many publications, including the following books, The Culture of Sectarianism, Community, History, and Violence in 19th Century Ottoman Lebanon. His book titled Artillery of Heaven, American Missionaries and the Failed Conversion of the Middle East was the winner of the 2008 Albert Hurani Book Award from the Middle East Studies Association, the 2009 John Hope Franklin Prize of the American Studies Association, and a co-winner of the 2009 British Kuwait Friendship Society Book Prize given by the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies. His most recent book is Age of Coexistence, The Ecunimical Frame and the Making of the Modern Arab World. Link for these books are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor McDesey and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor McDesey, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. It's been a year since Beirut's terrible explosion, the one that we Americans saw on our TVs and devices for several days. But since then, an economic crisis is crippling Lebanon, which is not really covered in our mainstream news media now, unfortunately. So I would love to learn about the current crisis from you. But before we do that, I want to learn about Lebanon itself. So let's just start with the fundamentals here. Who are the Lebanese people? Well, I mean, the Le- that's a, a, a huge question. <laughs> <And> <laughs> the Lebanese people are, uh, I mean, you would say basically today, the quickest answer uh, are the, the, the citizens of Lebanon, those who were 
in Lebanon when the state was created in 1920 by the French, by French colonialism. Um, and of course, the people who lived there, uh, in a sense, before uh, French colonialism. But it's important to sort of underscore for, for accuracy that the, the peoples of this entire region were all part of the Ottoman Empire. There were no borders um, in the sense that we have borders today. Uh, between uh, there were no states, in fact, like Lebanon or Syria uh, or Jordan. Uh, these states didn't exist, or Palestine or Israel. These states, none of these states existed, um, you know, prior to the 20th century. So there were the people went back and forth throughout the the Arab East or throughout the Mashriq, as we say, um, and the Lebanese were one among these people. How different is this lack of? I shouldn't say lack of, how different is the fact that in the Middle East, especially under the Ottoman Empire, there were no states, there were no borders. How different is that the European, uh, of the European experience at that time? Well, of course, there was a state. I mean, it was the Ottoman state. Um, what I mean is, uh, yeah. Lebanon. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the, these were all, I mean, all these provinces were provinces of the Ottoman empire um whose whose center of course was istanbul constantinople um and so in, in the sense of it being an empire and being an empire uh that didn't until the 19th century um advocate uh, for a, a single national sort of identity uh, that was the reality of this region um so people had many different identities religious identities urban identities village identities um mm -hmm you know, class identities, social identities, a whole sort of, as, as in every other part of the world, there's a, there's a very, there's a, an incredible richness, an array of identities, a pluralism um, that defined people in this part of the world. And of course there were tensions, uh, just again, like any other pluralist part of the world. But the, the important point to understand is that all these, the people that we today refer to as Lebanese, uh, like the Syrians, like the Lebanese, Palestinians, um, we're all part of, until the 20th century, we're all under Ottoman sovereignty. And I think that's the crucial part to, to understand. And the sovereignty, this Ottoman rule basically lasted from 1516, 1517, all the way until the end of the First World War. Um, you know, and some parts obviously were under more direct Ottoman control. Some parts like the mountainous regions of Lebanon where we're less under immediate Ottoman control and so on and so forth. So in 1920, when uh, Lebanon became uh, an independent state, um, what was the composition of its peoples, uh, ethnicities, nations, yeah. uh, what, however you want to uh, identify them as? Yeah, I mean, that's a, again, these are all like, you know, in the Lebanese context, these are all like, you know, loaded questions. Or <laughs> they could be courses within in, in and of the themselves. Sense, in the sense that, uh, of course, Lebanon was not an independent state in 1920. It was created as a mandate under French colonial uh, rule in 1920. Uh -huh. So the French carved up the, the, what had been sort of Ottoman provinces into various states along sectarian lines so they separated lebanon out from syria and they further subdivided syria into various little statelets on the basis of essentially on the basis of divide and rule and the french sort of idea um, in the levant in the mashrikh in the arab east was to basically separate 
Muslim from Christian and Muslim from minority. That was the, that was the, the raison d'etre that the French gave themselves for colonizing the um, Arab East. And so when they separated Lebanon out, the question of course was, what is the rationale for Lebanon? Where do you draw the borders? Yeah, yeah. Where do you draw the borders? Who do you include in this new country called Lebanon in 1920? And so what the French did is that they realized they couldn't just you know, uh, create a state that had only uh, the parts of what is today Lebanon that had a large Christian uh, population, because if they did that, there wouldn't the coast wouldn't be really part of the of the state, nor would the Bekaa Valley, which is the agriculturally rich areas of Lebanon, nor would the south, which is also a very rich area of Lebanon. None of these areas had Christian majorities, but the French realized that they needed to include all these areas into what is the state of Lebanon to create a sort of at least a a semi viable state. So they did that, and then of course the question was, okay, what's the composition? And it was a mixture. I mean, the honest answer, it was incredibly mixed. Um, and there's a lot of controversy um, in Lebanon about the mixture. In other words, about the actual demographics of the population. So controversy only, now still well, exists? From then, from then all the way until today. So there's only ever been, the last census taken in Lebanon was, if I'm not mistaken, in 1932, which is extraordinary when you think about it, the last official wow. census. Wow. Yeah, because uh, the state was created by the French on the basis that the Christians of Lebanon were the majority population, which is why they privileged the Christians, at least the elite Christians in Lebanon, and gave them the most powerful positions in the new state on the basis that these Christians were the majority. And so how did they figure that out? They had a census, an extremely controversial census that they carried out in 1932, and then they never had a census after because what, if, was the census controversial because of how people are classified and exactly included. we sort of have that here in america as well but yeah. perhaps not the same same level well and who do you include in the census exactly yeah. how do you classify people who do you include in the in the census do you include emigres in other words people who emigrated to the united states to to latin america do you include those people do you include refugees who arrived in Lebanon, do you include Muslim refugees as well as Christian refugees, and so on and so forth. It was an immensely controversial um, census, and the bottom line of the census is that, in effect, it, it showed, despite all the, the meddling and all the, the, the sort of, uh, you know, the controversy, it showed a slight, this is of course under French, remember this is under French colonial auspices, yeah. it showed a, a slight Christian majority, which then was used to justify the fact that Maronite Christians, and Maronites are Eastern Catholics, in effect, it's an Eastern Christian sect, uh, were, were, were basically privileged in this new state um, um, on the basis that the Christians were allegedly the majority. And so they created this sectarian system, this confessional system in Lebanon that has endured in different forms until today. Uh, and, Professor McDesey, going back to uh, the, the discussion about uh, French mandate and the yeah. French uh, influence in the early part of the 19th century anyway, I'm sorry, 20th century. Um, as I understand it, Lebanon prior to the Ottomans uh, for, for several centuries was part of the Byzantium empire, which was uh, for at least its second half or maybe the last three fourths of it, 
Orthodox Christian. Uh, am I correct in that? Well, of course, before the Ottomans, there were there were other empires, other Islamic polities. Uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, going yes. all the way back. Yes. And then you know, if you go back in history further, yes, you'll eventually get to the Byzantines, and then of course, yeah, before the Byzantines. But I think the crucial point here is that there's no Lebanon as such. Like in other words, Lebanon, the the modern state is a modern state, and then the question is, and then how do you create a mythology, a historical mythology, and a memory of a people? that didn't really exist as Lebanese per se, really, in the way we think of it today. Do you see what I'm I saying? See. In other words, yeah, like yeah. Lebanese, yeah, yeah. the Syrians, the Palestinians, these were all a mixed people who lived under various sovereignties and various administrative districts that changed over time. Um, and that didn't, there wasn't this thing called a Lebanese people per se that, that, that's been there from, you know, from the Byzantine time all the way till today. One of the interesting facts well it's not a fact one of the things that i wonder is how is it that lebanon is is more uh, sort of influenced by let's say french culture the catholic culture than let's say the orthodox culture from uh, constantinople or 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 other orthodox countries is there a large catholic presence in in uh, lebanon uh, there is, um, of course. Uh, again, uh, not, don't maybe, I don't want to be sort of pedantic about this point, uh, but it's Lebanon is influenced, or the Lebanese are influenced by all sorts of traditions, including, of course, French uh, Catholic traditions. There is a large Catholic population insofar as the Maronite Christians, um, and of course, the Maronite Christians are an, an ancient Eastern Christian sect that eventually got absorbed into the Catholic Church. Um, or at least sort of um, um, was, a, was um, uh, for, like, so the Maronite patriarch, the head of the Maronite church is a, is a cardinal in the Catholic okay. church. So there's, a, there's that relationship and, and that's a historic relationship. So there is a French Catholic influence at that level. There've also been French missions, Catholic missions, mm -hmm. as in schools and educational institutions that have been set up over centuries in what is today Lebanon, but there's also been, of course, Orthodox missions. There, there was a, of course, during the Ottoman period, there was the uh, the, the, the Orthodox Church uh, played a, a, a significant role, especially, of course, among Orthodox Christians who were the majority of Arab Christians in the wider region. Mm -hmm. um, there was, of course, Protestant missions in the 19th century into the 20th century. Um, there are American institutions, there are um, Muslim institutions, uh, there are trans-regional Muslim institutions, and so on and so forth. And so in other words, there's an extraordinary mixture in this part of the world. I wouldn't say there's only one um, influence. Thank you for clarifying that. Is, is, um, is the fact that there are several different religions and sects within religions in Lebanon, is that an anomaly for the region, or is that something that we just hear more about in the news? Yeah, I think we hear more about in the news, and we hear about it in mostly, I think, overwhelmingly in negative terms. In other words, yes, Lebanon is sectarian. But again, the truth of the matter is that this entire region is, in a sense, blessed by pluralism. Well, I mean, like other regions of the world. Blessed with pluralism. Yeah, in the sense that there's, okay. there's an extraordinary history of coexistence 
in in its in I would say in its most positive sense, as well as of course in other in other senses. But in other words, there is a a mixture between Muslims, Christians, and Jews, up until at least the modern 1948 and onwards. But there's been a, a long history of coexistence between different communities and individuals um, in this region, and it's one of the, the 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 main characteristics of this region. And and uh, of course, but then having said that, I immediately, as a historian, have to immediately qualify and say, but coexistence is not the same. In other words, it changes over time. There's coexistence before ideas of equality were introduced and citizenship. Mm-hmm. There's coexistence after those ideas, and I think that's. But the but the bottom line is that there's a long history, a shared culture in this part of the world. It's not just distinct or unique to Lebanon. It's You can see it in Syria, you can see it in Palestine, you can see it um, uh, in Iraq, you can see it throughout the region, frankly, um, throughout the Ottoman period and, and before the Ottoman period for that matter. There was coexistence, um, but again, variable forms of coexistence. Variable forms of coexistence. Because people often, just to interrupt, people often use coexistence as a cognate for equality. Like we, in America today, we say pluralism, we mean it as a positive term. And we, we always assume pluralism means also you know, equality. We, 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 we often associate those terms, but coexistence can also just mean you're living side by side with others, um, but not necessarily in a relationship of equality. And so do you see what I'm saying? So it can, I it do. Be, it, can be, it can be quite um, tense. Uh, and, you're and surviving within an environment, you're coexisting yeah. But not on equal terms. Yeah, and you can also adapt to it. And but again, it's not that it's not that people were oppressed necessarily in a uniform way before the 19th century, and then everything became fantastic after the 19th century when ideas mm-hmm. of citizenship and co- and equality were introduced. But that there is, I mean, the point I'm trying to make is that in the Levant, in the East, in the Mashrik, there is without question. Um, one of the, the most interesting and intriguing and I think beautiful aspects of the history of this part of the world is the, the mixture between um, uh, Muslims and Christians in particular, um, it, you know, that, that have defined this part of the world. There's I a wish, I wish, history. I wish they said that more in the news, the beautiful yeah, aspect well, of the Middle East. That, well, uh, it is. I mean, if you just go to the Middle East and you if you've ever been to the Middle East, you've ever been to... Uh, cities in the Middle East, whether it's Beirut or Cairo or Alexandria or Jerusalem or or uh, Aleppo. I mean, of course, I'm talking about before the war in Syria now. Yeah. Or Damascus or Baghdad. I mean, pluralism and mixture and coexistence are some of the most important and interesting and, and, and um, as I said, beautiful features of this part of the world. But they're not uncontested and it's not unchanging. Professor McDesey, you used the term meshreg a couple of times. What does that mean? Mashriq is the Arabic term for the, it means the East, the, you know. Is it East uh, in general, the geographic yeah. East, or is it a defined region within the East? Well, it sort of refers to, I mean, the, the Maghreb is the sort of, the Maghreb is, is, is the, the Arab West, or sort of speak, Morocco, in other words, North Africa. Uh-huh. And uh, the Arab East is basically what we would call, also use the term the Levant or the, 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 um, the, the east as in iraq I mean, you could think of it as iraq syria lebanon palestine i see that, that region the that arab region. east and the arab, the arab, east, arab, yeah. arab west got it um compared to say qatar azerbaijan tunisia other uh, middle eastern countries 
Lebanon stands out in Islamic history and also, frankly, kind of world history. And it's a relatively geographic small region. Why? Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't say it stands out necessarily. I mean, it's just that there, there. It's a small population. It's been in the news because of the civil war from 1975 to 1990. Mm -hmm. um, the Lebanese population is largely, well, not largely, but is um, diasporic in the sense that there's a large Lebanese diaspora in in America, in Latin America, in Europe, in Africa, and other parts of the world. Do you think they bring more attention to Lebanon? I think, I mean, obviously, Lebanese themselves are interested in Lebanon. I don't think, I don't think, I mean, I mean, certainly compared to Qatar, yes, uh, compared to, um, uh, compared to other other histories, other states or other countries with long histories. No, I mean, I think Lebanon is, I mean, Syria is just as interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Iraq is just as interesting, if not much more. I mean, there's states like these are. We're talking about very a very dynamic region. Yeah. Um, but the Lebanese have have uh, have been in the news. Um, you know, mostly I think most people know about Lebanon because of the the civil war, um, and then of course because of um, uh, because of the di diaspora. Do you think for, for all sorts of that, other reasons as well? But yeah, um, do you think the fact that the Crusades uh, happened partly there sort of brings some proximity of knowledge for Europeans, uh, for Westerners? Well, for Westerners, I think the fact that there's a large Christian population in Lebanon is yeah. what's, what, what's intrigued uh, people in the West. Um, but again, there are Christians throughout the the the, the, the Mashriq, throughout the Arab East, there are Christians. Yeah. Um, it's not just in Lebanon, but in Lebanon, there's been a large Christian population that has been politically very prominent as well. Uh, why don't we take a short break here and then talk about Lebanon's government and economy. Professor McDesey, at least ethnically speaking, Lebanon's government structure is extremely complex. Can you explain it to us, please? Uh, yes. I mean, right now, Lebanon, as you know, is going through a massive crisis. Um, and Unfortunately, the yes. Yeah. yeah. And the government, uh, the system in Lebanon is known as a sectarian system. Or you can think By the way, what does that mean, sectarian? You hear that all the time. So sect just means like uh, Maronite Christian, Greek Orthodox, Sunni Muslim, Shia Muslim, Druze, so on and so forth. In other words, communities. You can think of it in American terms as communal communities or ethnicities. Uh, they're not ethnicities because it's all the same ethnicity, but uh, almost all the same ethnicity, but they're divided along different religious. Um, so some of the sects are within the same religion, for example, the umbrella correct. of Christianity, others correct. such as Sunni and Shiite. Correct. are under the umbrella of Islam. Okay. Yeah, but each one is considered a distinct sect uh, yes. or community um, in the sense. Think of it more as community. That's a better way of putting it. But And so you can think of the word communalism rather than sectarianism. Mm -hmm. to mean the same thing. And in effect, uh, the French created this system in Lebanon, the state, as we said earlier in 1920. And then the question was how to organize government within this new state. And there were two options. Obviously, one option was to go the secular sort of U.S. model or the French model, for that matter, um, uh, a secular identity where you're sort of privileging a national secular identity over particular communal or sectarian identities. And the French opted 
together with their Lebanese local allies, they opted for a sectarian system. In other words, dividing government along sectarian or communal lines. And then, of course, the question was, how do you do that and assure people that they're all equal citizens of the same state? So how do you divide, like think of America, how do you divide America racially for, for an analogy? And at the same time, uphold, like if, if you had divided the U.S. government along racial lines, how would, how would you do that formally and at the same time maintain the principle of secular equality of all American citizens? It would be I, enormous, even, I, I can't even fathom that. Yeah. You can't fathom. Well, no. And so the idea of the sectarian system is that, is that to so that's why that sense we come back to that census of 1932, which which showed at least again it's a it's a deeply flawed, controversial census, but it showed a slight Christian majority. You know, take it at, at face value for for a second, even though as I said, it's it was a flawed and contested. Um, um, census, uh, but but in essence, the French said the Christians are the slight majority. Therefore, we're going to set up a, a system of government where our Christian Maronite clients will have the lion's share of power. But okay. Muslims would also be included in this system. So it's not we're not creating a Christian state. We're creating a secular Lebanese state, but in which we create government in which various senior posts, the president, for example, the prime minister, and so on, are divided among different groups so that each group, each community feels that it has a stake in government. That's the idea, at least that's the theory. The theory is that you want to include as many groups as possible within government to assure them that the government is not going to be excluding them. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, it's kind of a circular logic. The idea is that you want to give each community a stake in the system. But then the question is, how do you divide the pie? And so the, that's the, like saying the speaker of the if we use America as an analogy, speaker of the house must be from this sect and the president must be from this sect. Correct. And so the chief just I'm, 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 I'm yeah, absolutely. Sort of that's exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly the problem. And so the uh, I mean, in America, it wouldn't be sect. It would be it would be along racial lines. Yes, yes. You know, among, along the census lines here. So yes, I mean, it would be the same kind of problem you would run into. How do you do that, and at the same time encourage a secular, national, unified sense of being Lebanese? And that was the problem. <laughs> and so, from the beginning, of course, the point I want to emphasize here is that from the beginning, there was huge protest by uh, critical thinkers, and not just thinkers, educators, thinkers. Uh, even people in uh, government, writers and so on, who were completely opposed to the system, who said this is a catastrophic system that's going to lead to, it's not going to re reassure people that they belong. It's going to end up diminishing, undermining any sense of national identity in Lebanon because you're going to end up reinforcing particular sectarian or communal identities. Because if you divide the pie unequally, as you're going to inevitably... People are going to feel excluded. They're going to feel they need more of a share of power rather than building a, a secular national identity. And that's exactly what happened in Lebanon. They ended up creating this sectarian system and it's gotten worse and worse and worse over time. So since uh, sort of the intellectuals, you were saying educators uh, and others. Uh, actually Some pro, educators. Some, some educators. educators yeah. Yeah. Um, was there a response to that or this is a, yeah, this is this um, is yeah, there was a response. The response was those who advocated the sectarian system who said, look, we know we can't go from 
we can't go from who we are. This is the language they use. We can't go from who we are. We are sectarian. That's what they said. We can't go from that to a French or a Swiss or whatever, like a, a model system, a French system or an American system overnight. We need to go by stages. And so this is a transitional phase. This is the logic they use. They said, you're going to create a sectarian form of government that's transitional, that will lead us to a secular unified national Lebanese identity. So the myth in Lebanon, the governing myth of Lebanon, is that the sectarian system is a temporary system, that it's only a stage. It's meant to reach a secular national uh, unified Lebanese government. It's a staging ground, yeah, if you will. It's a stage. It's a stage in the process. That's the theory. Of course, the reality is that that stage is forever. It's gotten worse and worse sectarian thinking, sectarian action, sectarian networks, sectarian mobilization, sectarian distribution of resources. A, a civil war have all taken place and the, the, the temporary system has become permanent. And the, per, and, the, and the future idea of a secular Lebanese national identity has, has gone, has dissipated, has disappeared. Is there open active discourse about changing, going to the next step, if you will, Yes, changing the system of Lebanon in Lebanon? Yes, of course. And there's been, as I said, from the beginning, from the very beginning of the creation of the state of Lebanon, there's been an active, there have been many parties, many social movements, as I said, many individuals who have fought against the sectarian system. In fact, the anti-sectarian mobilization, thinking, discourse, writing, calls, political mobilization has been just as prominent, in a sense, as has the sectarian mobilization. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's yes. been, but they yes. haven't been, but the anti-sectarian groups have not actually ever achieved uh, power yeah. in a major way. Professor McDesey, we often hear, especially in the last couple of years, uh, in the news about mismanagement and corruption in Lebanon. Yeah. I don't think this is peculiar to Lebanon. Is this... Is this is Certainly it, not. <laughs> Certainly not. But, yeah. but what, is, what is peculiar is, is the is the, the current crisis, um, the, the level of corruption, the, 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 the complete sort of, um, I mean, it's, it's honestly, if you're not in Lebanon and you don't know the situation there, it's hard to fathom the, the extent of the crisis uh, and the collapse of a governing, of, of any kind of government in, in the country. What is the current crisis? The current crisis is essentially, I mean, there's many different ways of describing it, but let me put it in the most basic terms. No electricity, uh, no fuel, no uh, no pharma, no pharmaceutical, no medicine, or very little medicine. Um, uh, no government, no functioning government. You have a ruling class that has basically the people have lost all their savings in Lebanese banks. The central bank, essentially of Lebanon, ran a Ponzi scheme um, uh, for decades. And they have basically all the assets of Lebanese depositors and those who've deposited money in Lebanon, ordinary people's monies, have all been frozen in these accounts. They're not able to access their, their money. The situation is, is honestly is catastrophic in Lebanon. And you have a tiny Just, group at the very top who have made, of course, made millions of dollars and they've taken their money out of the country, but they have basically sort of punished 
the people of Lebanon and have not formed a government. And this is in addition to the bomb that you talked about what earlier. What do you mean they haven't formed a government? I'm trying to wrap my brain around. You mean you don't have a there's head of a, a state? There's a caretaker government that's been in in uh, in a caretaker mode since, if I'm not mistaken, since the August um, explosion two year, mm -hmm. a, a year ago. Um, uh, you know, do you remember that that massive yeah, explosion? Oh, of course, of course, yeah, I, yeah. So there's been there's been the the central bank governor who's overseen this catastrophic sort of financial system in Lebanon has not resigned. Um, nobody, in fact, has resigned, as far as I can tell, from the government itself in terms of actual people taking responsibility and saying we made a mistake we the, the the ruling class is still it's again it's hard to it's really hard to 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 explain without sort of without um um without um being completely outraged but but the, the you're the welcome people, to be outraged well, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm being outraged as you i mean the people it. in power the people in power in lebanon this is and this is across the board it's not a question of sect yeah, and because yeah. The, these are like an elite that shares a certain kind of interest and outlook, and they have, in 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 essence, conspired. And it's not like it's not some kind of dark conspiracy, but they've conspired to basically bankrupt the country. Um, the country is bankrupt. To what aim? Well, Did because their own they, pockets. Uh, well, of course, partly to fill their own pockets. I mean, uh, but but partly because they 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 after the civil. The question was after the civil war, how do you rebuild the economy? On what terms? And what sectors in the economy do you privilege? And how do you bring dollars into the country? And do you borrow? And if you borrow, in what currency do you borrow? And so on and so forth. And these are all, you know, we can get into all the details, but essentially the, the Lebanese government since the civil war, the end of the civil war, which ended, of course, not with the warlords being tried, the ones who led the Lebanese into a civil war and fought and made money during the civil war and who ran militias and who killed people in the country these are the people who actually ended up taking over after the war Jeez. and they with with um, let's be honest with uh, syrian us and saudi support uh, i mean so lebanese warlords took over after the war they divided the pie uh, after the civil war was over they amnestied themselves um, and then they started borrowing in fact the central bank governor who's now who's still the central bank governor began borrowing um, heavily and they pegged the Lebanese. I mean, this, is, this isn't maybe too much detail for your audience, but they pegged the Lebanese pound to the dollar at the rate of 1,500 pounds to the dollar. And they kept it at that artificial rate for decades. And, but, but to do that, you have to sustain, you have to keep generating, you have to keep make sure that dollars are coming into the system. And then to, they started yeah. borrowing in dollars to finance reconstruction, but rather than reconstructing uh, the, the educational system or the uh, the electricity system, they ended up sort of, they ended up uh, honestly embezzling billions of dollars. And so Lebanon today, decades after the end of the civil war, has no electricity functioning electricity system, uh, has no internet that, that functions properly, has no roads that are, I mean, the, the, the entire infrastructure of the country has fallen into disarray and disrepair because the elites who ran the country for decades after the war have basically essentially shared in, honestly, that's the, the, the very simple way they shared in the embezzling of all this money, leaving the Lebanese people with a huge debt, with a massive debt uh, from which they are now, you know, and, and will for the foreseeable future 
be be stuck with. What what you're describing, uh, Professor McDesey, is not is not a crisis. It's just near just it's a catastrophe. Catastrophe. To, it is a catastrophe. Uh, it's not a crisis. You're right. Yeah, it is, and, it is and a catastrophe. I mean, I, there's no other way to describe none that, but the point I want to emphasize, if you don't mind, please, is that, is that people often talk about sectarianism and and sect. It's 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 not about sectarianism. This is about this is about a general bankruptcy. Um, I'm talking about moral bankruptcy as well as financial and political moral bankruptcy. bankruptcy. Okay, of course, on the part of the ruling class in Lebanon. Um, so it's not a question of being Christian or being Muslim. It's a question of a kind of political performance that is absolutely scandalous. And these people have 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 in effect um, um, bankrupted the country, and are still there. And the amazing thing is that they're still there. The same group are still there, and they are totally unwilling to accept any responsibility uh, for the current crisis. Professor McDC, Lebanon wasn't like this. Just. 40, 50 years ago, if I'm if I have my timeline correctly, maybe a little longer than that, it, Beirut was 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 dubbed the Paris of the Middle East. Uh, um, yeah, in Lebanon. the 60s of the past of the, of yeah. the century uh, and the seven the beginning of the 70s, maybe. But again, th- these these terms are terms we should take with a grain of salt. We should take them. Okay, why? Well, because I mean, yes, it was. A, I mean, I don't know what what does it mean to say the Paris. It was it's. It was itself. It wasn't. It wasn't the Switzerland of the Middle East or the Paris of the Orient or whatever the term was. Uh-huh. These are like cliches. Um, that, in other words, they're. Was, you mean they don't reflect reality? Is no, that they reflect. What? A, well, it's a, it's a metaphor to describe a certain reality, which is to say uh-huh. that Beirut was, without question, in the fifties and sixties, in the context of the Arab East, and the various states that were created, um, in the twentieth century. Beirut was a hub of publishing, for example of journalism, of education, and so on. And so, and of course, of, of shopping and so on. And so the, and this is of consumer, uh, of the availability of consumer goods. And so these are the reasons why. And of course, you had this glamorous sort of image of a, I mean, it was a beautiful Mediterranean country on, you know, on the Mediterranean with yeah, yeah. geography and topography and, you know, uh, all these things and the sort of an openness to uh, like a free exchange and, and travel and so on and so forth. So these are the reasons why people dubbed it the Paris of the Orient. But then, you know, there was a massive civil war in 1975 till 1990 that effectively devastated the country. And after the war, as I just explained, the warlords who ran the war uh, took over and they further bankrupted the country. And today we're paying, we're seeing the results in effect. We'll be back after a short break to talk about foreign interference in Lebanon. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor McNeese, 
when we hear about Lebanon in the news, it's almost always in conjunction with the presence or influence of another country there in Lebanon. Um, gosh, like Turkey, Israel, Iran, Syria. Uh, back in the 80s, it was, I, you know, you remember the bombing in Beirut, uh, the U.S., uh, France, uh, President Macron was just there uh, uh, recently. So how pervasive has foreign influence or I guess in, interference been in Lebanon's history? How real is it? Massive. Um, I mean, first of all, Lebanon, as we've said several times already, was created by France. Yeah, yeah. So the very country was created by an outside power, a colonial power, um, in the guise of the mandate system. And so ever since then, um, Lebanon has been subject to foreign interference of one sort or another, but also the Lebanese elites, the political elites who have done so much damage to the country have also themselves willingly uh, consort or sort of allied themselves with various foreign powers. And, and they each, so it's like this constant game where they try to use a foreign power to out, out maneuver a local rival uh, and then foreign powers use them. And it's, it's sort of like, uh, and it's not unique to Lebanon. This happens to a lot of countries. Look, look what's happened in Afghanistan. Look what's happened to many different yeah. countries, Iraq. Um, you know, when the door is open to foreign powers, various foreign powers compete um, and use your 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 land to play out their rivalries, and at the same time, Lebanese themselves again have uh, the elites in particular, and and the heads of the militias and and various parties have actively uh, encouraged uh, various foreign powers, and some powers, of course, are much larger than others. The United States, um, Israel has invaded Lebanon twice. The Syrians had a huge presence in Lebanon during the civil war and after the civil war until 2005. Um, uh, you've mentioned Iran. I mean, there are many, Saudi Arabia, of course, there, there's so many different countries that have been involved in Lebanese affairs. If, if I may, I, I want to get some clarification from you, if I may, please. Um, you mentioned the term malicious. Yeah. And we often see in the news militia groups yeah. in, uh, in Lebanon, and they, they carry uh, placards, uh, pictures, signs that, uh, for example, is of an Ayatollah in Iran or an Ayatollah in Iraq or, 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 uh, or, 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 or sort of insignia that actually belongs or points to another country. So is it the case that in addition to Lebanon's military, there's also foreign presence in, term, in, in terms of militia in Lebanon now? Well, I mean, insofar as militias during the civil war um, um, and after, of course, you know, have been financed, have received weapons, have received training, have received logistical support, have received diplomatic support from various powers, there's always a relationship between the local militias and outside powers. I and mean, the Lebanese don't produce uh, the weapons they use uh, to fight uh, their civil, did not produce the weapons they, they used to fight their, to, to fight the civil war, and nor do they produce weapons today. And so they, they, they get these from outside powers. 
So yes, there are these trans, in academic terms, we would say these are their transnational patronage networks. Transnational patronage, patronage networks. networks that okay. basically obviously cross boundaries and, and borders and that each militia that's tied to a, a particular power will rely on that power to get weapons um, and may or may not dispel, uh, may, may or may not display, sorry, um, images of that, that that show its allegiance to power X or power Y. Yeah. So, um, I mean, some show, you said some show images of the Ayatollahs and others have crosses on their, on their, yes, during, the, yes. during the war, crosses, you know, on their weaponry and they have the Pope and God knows what. I mean, all sorts. And some people celebrate America and others, you know, so it's, it just depends on which country um, these people are, are tied to. So do these militias, um, I, I don't know any of their names. The only one I hear in the news is Hezbollah. So pardon my sort of limited knowledge of this. Do these militias such as Hezbollah essentially blunt the power of the government's own military? Well, I mean, that's a complicated question because, you know, Hezbollah, for example, you know, came into being after the Israeli invasion of 1982. And so it's, and in part, it, it emerged largely and it remains largely in the Lebanese context based in the, the South and in the Shia areas of the country. And so as a resistance movement to Israeli uh, occupation initially, and then as a sort of deterrent to the Israelis, that, that's, that's the, how they define themselves and that's how they emerged. But they also emerged because the parts of the country where they were came from were the most deprived or among the most deprived parts of the country that the sectarian system basically ignored. So you have a, a double com oh. you have a combination of geopolitics and also of material um, um, and sectarian deprivation. The, the result, the combination of which plus the Iranian revolution, all these factors coming into being together was the impetus behind the emergence of Hezbollah in the 1980s, 1990s, and, and, and until today. So do, does the Hezbollah also provide some, I don't even know how to term this, some services for the deprived regions in the South that you were just mentioning? I mean, among its own constituency, yes, for sure, absolutely. That's one of the reasons why it remains popular among its constituency. And you asked in terms of the Lebanese army, the truth, I mean, so here's a very interesting conundrum and it, one can speak freely about this. Like, for example, there is a Lebanese army. Um, the Lebanese army is supplied by the United States. The to US, say? I think so, yeah. Okay. Not, I mean, insofar as, I mean, the Lebanese army is barely, you know, can barely keep it together, uh, so to speak. It's not a very powerful army. Okay. Um, it, it, during the civil war, it sort of divided and, and was essentially paralyzed. It didn't, it didn't really, um, function as a national army during the civil war. It divided and 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 um, along sectarian lines, and then after the war, it was reconstituted. And the idea is that this was meant to be sort of a, a melting pot, so to speak, of the Lebanese. And so the U.S. is and has been historically the the after the French, the main supplier of weaponry to the Lebanese army. But the but the United States, because of its its um, its bias towards Israel will not give the Lebanese army, for instance, um, any kind of serious weaponry to fight anti-aircraft systems or whatever. And so the Lebanese army is completely incapable of defending Lebanon from, for example, Israeli overflights or Israeli bombardments or Israeli threats. And these are real threats that have been going on for decades. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so Hezbollah emerges 
among for many reasons, as we said, for many different reasons. There's not yeah. just one reason. Uh, but it, it comes and it says, okay, we are the resistance. And they call themselves the resistance. The Arabic word is al-muqawama, the resistance. And that's how they refer to themselves. They are the resistance, obviously, to Israeli um, aggression. And so then that, you say, that, okay, that term is probably popular among regular people. In Lebanon, you mean? Or yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, among among yeah, I mean, look, it, it it's it's the only sort of organization that fought and liberated uh, Arab land uh, um, in two thousand when Israel withdrew from Lebanon. Israel invaded in 1978 first, then in 1982, and then withdrew finally in the year two thousand because principally because of Hezbollah's resistance. And so Hezbollah basically says, "Look, we are the defenders of our people and our land," and then. You say, okay, what about the Lebanese army? But the Lebanese yeah. army is incapable of actually defending its land. And the U.S. will not give it any weapons to defend itself properly. And even if, you know, so do you see, it's a very complicated it, picture. It really is. So people are saying Hezbollah should give its weapons over to the Lebanese army. And Hezbollah says, well, you know, show me how you're going to defend the country first and defend our people and our villages first. And then we'll talk about uh handing over weapons but we're not going to hand over weapons just like this that's their line now you the, can yeah. the reason i asked uh, you were saying using the arabic word for resistance i said that's got to be popular in lebanon is because it seems it, it almost sounds it sounds patriotic we are the resistance to whatever foreign invasion from whatever yeah. country it yeah. is um well it's divided i mean lebanon is a divided country like a lot of i mean it's there's a yeah. lot of today there's a lot of division in lebanon i see um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor McDesey as we get into the perspective. Can a multi-ethnic, multi-religious government such as Lebanon's ever work? I, I appreciate that that's a hypothetical but we just went through uh, almost an hour of talking about this pluralistic society that uh, that that is uh, you know inching towards a calamity yeah well no it's in calamity right now so the answer the answer is i mean in theory of course the, the there's no i mean there's no correlation between being having a rich tradition of pluralism um, and having calamity. The, the question yes. really is the question really is a historical political one, which is why is it that that the particular Lebanese system has led to the calamity that we see today? And there are many different factors. We've talked about some of them, not all of them. Um, but you know, of course, you know, there's uh, pluralism. Of course, has to be if if one is optimistic, one has to say pluralism. And the respect for diversity and the respect for difference um, and equal citizenship has to be the basis of any kind of future um, government. I mean that 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 to me yeah. that's my that's my perspective. You can say that well that's just you know that's just idealism. And my point is that pluralism everywhere, not just in Lebanon. Think of the U.S. Since your your listeners will be most familiar with the U.S. case, I, I assume. Yes. In the U.S., you know, pluralism and coexistence are not things you take for granted. You have to work to make sure that the U.S. system reflects pluralism in a um, in a, a, an equal and fair manner. And of course, it hasn't historically. We know that in this yeah. country, people have fought 
to make this a better and more just society. And the same goes for Lebanon and every other, every single other pluralist society in the world. Um, the point is not the pluralism is is a beautiful thing and is a a boon, but it's also, um, you know, the question is how do you avoid uh, people um, manipulating pluralism, uh, manipulating the fear of others to justify sort of um, reactionary programs. Yeah. I asked that question in the context of what we see in other parts of the world. For example, if you look at Turkey, mm-hmm. despite its large Kurdish uh, population, it's a Turkish country. If you look at Iran, despite its very large Azeri, Kurdish, some Arab in the Southwest and other, other ethnicities, it's a Persian country. Uh, and I can go on, look at in China, they're really uh, establishing the Han ethnicity as the dominant. So do you perceive that to stabilize Lebanon? Uh, I think Lebanon is too small a country. Uh, for that to happen. happen. Yeah, for that to happen. It's way too small a country. The way for it was one dominant you can't. I mean, there hasn't been, and there, and and it, that's why, you know, that, that's one of the reasons why we've had all this civil war and and these, and the, the tensions and the sectarian tensions. No single group has been able to dominate Lebanon for long, um, and so you don't have. It's. I think it's. It's. We're also talking about just the the geography and the demography is completely different from the cases you were mentioning earlier turkey iran china these are huge states yeah i mean obviously yeah. china china is we're talking about superpower mega superpower yes. mega power as opposed to lebanon so it's like yeah. apples and oranges in this yeah. sense i appreciate that um um do you see any way out of this economic crisis I was just talking to my father this morning, if I can, if you allow me a personal note, and I asked him, like, Please do. How is long... he in Lebanon? He's in Lebanon. He's a retired professor of economics. Um, oh, wow. And um, he was at AUB, the American University of Beirut, where mm-hmm. my younger brother is also a professor. And, you know, and they're, they're suffering through this crisis, uh, through this calamity. Um, you know, the wages have been cut. My father's retired, but all his, you know, his... He like all like so many other people in the country have, have seen their their lives work essentially stolen, and my my younger brother is a professor and his income has effectively been cut by ninety percent, like all other salaried officials. Because wow, the 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 dollar used to be fifteen hundred to to it used to be fifteen hundred pounds to the dollar two years ago. Now it's twenty four thousand to the dollar. And so you can imagine what's happened to people's incomes. And plus you've had massive inflation. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it really is an extraordinarily difficult time without electricity, without internet, without, you know, without government, without, as I said, without, with the pharmacies empty. Um, it's just, it's, it's really hard to comprehend the scale of the catastrophe in Lebanon. Will it, will things, what will happen? I don't I can't remember your question. If your question is, no, will I was there a change. It, do you there, see there, a way there, out? Well, I asked my father this and he said, you know, he said he's like, you know, he's, I think a lot of people are, are, are despairing today because, you know, the optimistic part is eventually, I mean, and that's the beautiful part of history is that eventually thing, everything changes. I mean, at some point you, you reach rock bottom. Will there be a revolution? Will there be, will people in Lebanon understand that their common interests 
are clearly against this tiny group at the very top that have so exploited and bankrupted the country, irrespective of their sectarian affiliation, will they realize that they have a common cause and that they really need to create a new kind of system, a new kind of government, a new kind of identity? I mean, that's an open question. The, yeah. the thing about history is that we, we can't, we never do predict, we can never predict when, what the tipping point is, what the spark is, but we do know that things change for sure. Um, in the last year or so, has Lebanon experienced a brain drain, if you will, where all the intellectuals Absolute, and absolutely, but Lebanon has been ex experiencing a brain drain for for decades. Um, you know, it's unfortunate. Yeah, because again, I mean, I mean, just again, people who are educated and the Lebanese are educated, like like a lot of people in the region. Um, and they're educated. They they want jobs. There are no jobs in the country. The economy is in free fall right now. Um, even people who want to, who desperately want to go back and be in Lebanon, now are going to obviously, understandably, think 15 times before doing so because we go back to what? Yeah. And yeah. So, so that's, um, that's where we are today. But things will change. I'm, I'm, let's be optimistic. From your lips to God's ears, I hope so. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Lebanon, sir, what, what would that be? It's part of a region that has a rich history of pluralism, of coexistence, but it's also a part of the world that is being uh, devastated by geopolitics. Thank you for that. Professor McDesey, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here, at the peel.news, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.News.